Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we wrapped up the strength of confidence with an episode that explored some ways to feel like a good person, which can be surprisingly challenging for many people. Today, we're beginning a new series of episodes focused on calm, the mental resource that helps us stay centered as we deal with the difficult things that happen over the course of a normal life. Everyone experiences physical or emotional pain some of the time, and besides actual pain, the threat of pain comes from many directions much of the time, ranging from trucks driving too close to your car to irritation flickering across the face of a loved one. When we grow the strength of calm, we're more able to relax and center ourselves when faced with threats, recognize and separate the paper tigers from the real challenges of life, feel safer, and cool needless anger. I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So to frame the conversation, in our book Resilient, we could only cover 12 strengths. Uh We had to pick 12. (laughs) And you decided, in your great wisdom, that calm (laughs) earned a spot as one of those 12 strengths. Yeah. We describe people as many things. We describe them as brave or confident or strong or mature or whatever it might be. But it's pretty rare to hear somebody be like, wow, they're just so calm. So kind of in that context, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, why was it that you kind of decided that calm was a sufficiently important strength to merit inclusion? Well, um, it's a great question. I'll tell you why it popped out for me. So we're entering into now the third group of three strengths, one for each of our core needs mm-hmm. in order, safety, satisfaction, and connection. And this third group of strengths clusters around the aspect of well-being that has to do with regulating. Mm -hmm. Just a quick reset, the way we structured the 12 strengths is that we thought in terms of three needs, and then we considered those three needs, and, and especially we considered resources for these three needs that related to four aspects of well-being, four ways we find a lasting well-being, namely recognizing what's true out in the world and in ourselves. That's the first group of three. And then immediately resourcing ourselves, so, you know, getting, getting some help immediately, and then moving into regulating. We really have to regulate ourselves. That's one of the deep teachings really from biology, and, and then it's uh, the emergent science of psychology within the larger frame of biology that uh, all living creatures need to regulate themselves. And the more complex the creature, the more complex the regulation. And then the last group of three, as you know, has to do with relating as a mode of well-being and a, and a support for well-being. So if we're to regulate ourselves with regard to our need for safety, and we are to build up resources that help us regulate ourselves in terms of safety, uh, pain and the threat of pain, then it seems to me that a, a fair overarching term is calm for the capacities to um, tap into a place inside of calm strength. Mm-hmm. When your life is on the line or the lives of others or the stakes are really, really high. Yeah. There's a quote from Adam Savage that I know that you're partial to, which is that calm people live, tense people die. Mm-hmm. And he gave this when, as part of Mythbusters, the show that he was on for a while, they didn't experiment and it went a little bit sideways. And he was trapped in a car that was being dropped into the bottom of a lake or something oh, wow. like that. And he had to figure out how to get out of the car when their safety mechanisms had kind of not totally worked the way that they had hoped that they would. 
Um, and that was sort of the thought that popped into his head. And he's at least said that it became like very much sort of a guiding principle for him during those difficult circumstances. Wow, that's great. That's yeah. really, that's deep. And kind of more generally, if you think about it, when we're faced with threat, mm-hmm. uh, pain or the threat of pain, it's natural to experience anxiety, anger, or, or a sense of helplessness, immobilization, freezing in the face of it all. These these arise. They're normal. They're normal signals. Um, they're, they fuel us in various ways to do what, what we need to do for ourselves or others to deal with, with the threats. But if they invade us and if they hijack us, if we're hijacked by fear in its various forms or anger or overwhelmed by freezing and helplessness, then we're not so able to regulate ourselves to meet our needs for safety, particularly when the stakes are high. So calm has an overarching term that is just one word, but it refers to a variety of things that we're going to be covering in the the next several podcasts. That overarching collection of resources, which we just call calm, enables us to manage natural fear that arises, natural anger that arises, and natural sense of just being... (laughs) overwhelmed by things in such a way that we're not uh, disempowered by it and we're not um, afflicted by it or or sucked into really problematic forms of suffering. So that's why I think calm is really important. So to kind of say that back to you really quickly, Mm -hmm. you're speaking to one of the really primal experiences of humans, which is fear of various kinds. Um, Fear about danger and particularly fear about life-threatening forms of Mm. danger. And it's important for us to note for a second here that social danger 10,000 years ago Mm. was absolutely life-threatening, particularly, geez, 10,000 years ago, a million years ago. You're with a small group of buddies on the Serengeti or whatever, and if you are cast out from the band because they don't like you, you know, that's basically a death sentence. So that's part of the reason that there's so much primacy placed on our social interactions mm. and those kinds of social fears. So to just kind of encapsulate yeah. that. And calm is our kind of primary tool mm-hmm. to deal with those most fundamental yeah. sources of stress of all. Is that more or less what you're saying? Yeah. And also, um, to kind of name people I've talked with, uh, I'm thinking of someone that you know who's very mm. involved in, in our activities, mm-hmm. Stephanie. And I was talking with her about psychological resources of various kinds. And and a wonderful framing question is, gee, what do you wish were more present in your mind these days? What would really help as a psychological attitude or emotion or intention or kind of way of being? Mm -hmm. And boy, really hardly missing a beat. She said, calm. I just wish I was less frazzled, less stressed, got a baby, calm. Wow. A lot of things flying around in her life, a lot of activities, a lot of go, 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 calm. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, the psychological sense of calm maps to a very healthy resting state, home base for the body, in which it's not jacked up around stress and it's able to repair and refuel itself. So to get into that, yeah, your work is very grounded in the physicality of the body and the physicality of the brain. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the biological systems that are related to the experience of calm, distinguishing that sort of stimulus versus response? Our response is the experience of calm. What are the things in the body yeah. that make us feel that way? Yeah. Alan Watts apparently uh, had this line at one point, life is wiggly. And uh, people use metaphors like waves being on the, on the seashore or 
to put it a little differently, life continually wiggles any kind of living creature, plant, animal, bacteria, virus, and human being. So life wiggles us. And uh, the body, um, which is very complex and has, gosh, what, about 100 trillion different cells in it and a lot of other mm. mechanisms, is really designed to manage the wiggles of life within bounds, to stay within bounds. And uh, we have a variety of systems that do that. The hormonal systems do that. The immune systems do that. Cardiovascular systems do that, entwined with breathing. And we have the nervous system, which is really the master regulator of the body, and which regulates all these other systems. And to some extent is regulated by them, but is still the master regulator more or less. In the nervous system, there's a branch called the autonomic nervous system that has two wings of it, the parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system. Its function is to keep us on an even keel as the waves of life wiggle us. So uh, the super fast nutshell on them is that the parasympathetic system is the more ancient system. It tends to slow us down, and it's known as the rest and digest system. When you see a lizard just kind of bathing in the sun, doing lizard push-ups there and just chilling out, it's probably got a fair amount of parasympathetic activation. Or after you push back from the table, after a big meal, in uh, your mind is just sort of in a very pleasant state of blotto. There's a lot of parasympathetic activation there. And then uh, in evolution, emerging several hundred million years ago, the sympathetic wing of the nervous system developed. And technically, a lot of its uh, tendrils that extend from nerve from neuron to neuron are insulated, which is mm. to say they're myelinated, which enables signals to uh, move rapidly between them. So the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight response, rapid response, fire right up. Sympathetic nervous system is more associated with the freeze response, particularly when it's excessive. Their animals are fish that when they get frightened, they initiate such a strong freeze response so the predators can't see them because predators detect motion, that these particular kinds of fish will freeze, and by freezing, they'll sink to the bottom of the lake mm. where there's very little oxygen, mm -hmm. and then they'll die. Wow. For example, like their freeze response is so intense for them, mm -hmm. which gives you a sense of it. Uh, it's like an adaptive response that's maladaptive in its effects. Mm -hmm. So netting it all out, um, both of these branches of the sympathetic, uh, pardon me, of the um, autonomic nervous system are appropriate. They're connected a little bit like the wings of a seesaw. As one goes up, it inhibits the other one and pushes it down. So as parasympathetic activity rises, that tends to lower uh, sympathetic activity. As uh, sympathetic activity rises, it tends to lower parasympathetic activity. Both of them are really important, but in our mm. go, 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 boom, boom, boom culture, People get trained in sympathetic arousal and um, are exposed to chronic overactivation of the sympathetic wing of the nervous system, which is also very entwined with stress hormones mm. like adrenaline and cortisol. Mm -hmm. And so it's an important corrective to train the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system so that as appropriate, not to go through life always so super mellow because that would be weird and you couldn't function and that would be bad but as appropriate to be able to reset to a state of calm, clear, coping and capability, calm strength, mm -hmm. um, 
and to recover rapidly from bursts of stressful activity which involve sympathetic nervous system activation. So reading a little bit into what you're saying here, we basically want to have a predominance of parasympathetic activation, which seems to be associated with calm, generally speaking, and a little bit of sympathetic activation enough to rev up when we need to and keep things exciting and, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. and, and, And to be really clear, sometimes the sympathetic nervous system gets a bad rap. Yeah. As uh, stress, fight, flight. And well, it's all about what emotions are associated with it. Mm. See, high parasympathetic activation combined with terror and the freeze response is not good. Mm-hmm. Parasympathetic activation associated with a sense of awe or reassurance or gratitude or ease peaceful abiding. That's good. Flip the other way, sympathetic activation uh, in which there's a strong sense of fear or anger or addictive drivenness, possessiveness. Gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it. Uh, That's not good for you. That'll hurt your body a lot over time. On the other hand, sympathetic nervous system uh, activation along with delight, Mm. uh, enthusiasm, Curiosity, verve, passion, zeal, that's great. That's Mm -hmm. good for you. So it really depends on what it feels like uh, and also uh, what a person's nature is. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people, they're just a little bit too revved up. They're running too hot. It's like RPMs. They would be really served by lowering their internal RPMs from 4,000 revolutions per minute to just 2,500. Mm-hmm. There are other people, they're inert, and it's a short hop to depressed mood. Mm-hmm. They're just too, bleh. they don't experience much enthusiasm. It's hard to sustain the experience of pleasure. They don't have much sense of of zeal and, and delight in their life, and they would be really served by kicking up their RPMs from, let's say, 1,500 to 2,500, using the metaphor. To take a lot of what you said there and kind of put a maybe oversimplistic bow around it, um, when we get revved up, when we get excited, and it is paired with a positive feeling, it is that feeling of excitement. It's a feeling of zeal. It's a feeling of positive energy. Equally, when we have a good experience and it's paired with that parasympathetic activation, maybe we feel really mellow, really relaxed, Mm -hmm. really at home in ourselves, whatever it might be. But whenever we have those bad experiences... That's where we get sympathetic as stress and parasympathetic as depression or terror or or immobilization, immobilization, whatever um, it might be. Apathy, Mm -hmm. ennui. Yeah. So the real thing that you're you're pointing to here Mm -hmm. is that as much as it is about not getting too revved, Mm -hmm. it's about being aware what your stimuli are when you're in the process of getting revved one way or the other. That's right. I think one of the subtexts here is range of response. Like, for example, uh, you have played a lot of games online and otherwise, including, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, poker. And in game theory, and here's where I'm just kind of tossing something out, really, because you know more about this than I do. In game theory, typically, if two players are Mm -hmm. competing, the one of the two who has greater range of potential responses is more likely to win. Not always. 
but they're able to draw on different strategies. They're able to think more flexibly. They can shift out of frames of reference that were they were stuck in, and they're going to tend to do better. And you can really see that, I think, in business and in, in life in general. And a lot of what we're talking about, I think, is expanding the range in which a person can develop an adaptive response mm -hmm. to whatever life's conditions are. And mm -hmm. I think there are moments or, or needs or situations in which profound tranquility, I mean, deep, 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 even meditative stillness inside is really useful. Mm -hmm. At the other end of the spectrum, I think there are times where people in the zero to 10 intensity scale, being, to go, being able to rise to an eight or a nine or even a 10, there's no 11 on this scale, is really, really useful for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're kind of talking about range here. And yeah, maybe you got your, your resting state. I, I tend to be fairly mellow in my disposition. I'm kind of cheerfully excitable about neat things. And then I sort of settle back down pretty fast. And people have different ways of being. But it, I think it's really great to expand your flexibility because then you have more autonomy and you can be more dexterous and, and supple in the way you respond to the demands of life as they wiggle through you. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that I would mostly echo what you said there, where a lot of what we're really focused on here is about being functional at all parts of the spectrum. Yeah. And understanding, well yeah, the elements of the sympathetic nervous system mm -hmm. that can be used to our benefit mm -hmm. and the elements of the parasympathetic nervous system that can be used to our benefit because they both have their place in life. In this episode, in the strength, of course, we're focused more on activating the parasympathetic system mm -hmm. because we tend to get driven from that system yeah. into that sympathetic activation yeah. a bit more readily than vice versa. I mean, if you're listening to this, you might have had the experience in the past where you got really revved by something and you found it really tough to wind down, mm -hmm. even if it was a good experience, even yeah. if it was the, a, a really positive thing that happened at night you were rooting for a sports team it's the mm -hmm. world cup that's going on right now yeah. and they won their game and now you have to go to bed and you're laying awake staring at the ceiling for two hours yeah. right on the other hand if you're in that bed and you are really settled and you are just mellow but you hear like a step outside of the door or there's a branch that cracks mm. outside or something oh man you can ramp up real yeah quick. that's the function yeah Myelination. absolutely signal yeah and yep. that's the whole point right is Whoosh. that in the wild you were supposed to be able to ramp up yeah. real quick. You yeah. had to be able to respond yeah. to those threats. And you were supposed to be chill mm -hmm. most of the rest of the time. Yeah. Because that's how you conserved resources, didn't burn metabolic mm -hmm. supplies, and therefore need to go out foraging for food, which then exposed you to predation mm -hmm. and other risks. And that's yeah. why it's such a, a problem these days, as you were saying, where we have all these cultural stimuli that kind of keep us in that constant, as you refer to it in the book, a pink zone, yeah. where it's not the red zone, <laughs> but it's not the green zone, and you're kind of wandering into the red zone. It's not so fun. So anyways, with that as a context, what are some of the ways that we can activate the parasympathetic system, or in layman's terms, relax, yeah. when we start to feel ourselves getting a little too stressed, a little too revved up, a little too nervous, whatever it might be? Yeah, there's some great hacks. Um, one is to uh, take long exhalations, hmm. force long exhalations. For example, uh, take three breaths in a row, and people can, while listening, can do it right now, and you'll notice an immediate change. Inhale, two, three. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, and then repeat. In other words, 
have an exhalation that's at least as long as, and even up to twice as long as, the inhalation, that will naturally engage the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system because it's involved in exhalation. And during exhalation, the heart rate slows. Mm. So that's a real quick one. And mm-hmm. what's nice about that is you can be in the middle of a very stressful situation and nobody needs to know that internally you're counting for one or two or three or more mm-hmm. breaths and making your exhalations longer. That's a really, really good one. Another good one is to um, literally imagine uh, any kind of cue for you for relaxation. That's a, maybe a place you went to, like a sunny mm. summer day on the beach, mm-hmm. what that actually feels like. Or maybe you imagine uh, plopping in your big comfortable chair and cup of tea or something and your cat crawls into your lap and the house is quiet and it's all still and you can hear the clock ticking and you're just hanging out. And maybe that really, really draws you in. So you can self-cue that. That's another really, really good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Third is to withdraw. Withdraw from that which is cranking you up and make an excuse. Go to the bathroom, wash your hands, warm water, uh, warm hands, by the way, uh, as best I understand this, also gets involved in the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. So if you're trying to sleep, it's a little trick. Bring your hand under the covers or under the pillow because that can help you relax and calm down. Or if you're in a stressful situation, wash your hands in warm water mm. or maybe tuck them under your armpits or put them in your pockets to just warm your hands. It's a little trick that apparently supports parasympathetic activation. Then there's another one, which you don't want to do in public too much, but it can kind of work. Touch your lips. Mm. Uh, don't suck your thumb unless you really want to. But if you touch your lips, uh, parasympathetic nerve fibers are very involved in the mouth mm-hmm. and uh, because the parasympathetic nervous system is primarily involved with um, eating and digestion, mm. rest and digest, as mm-hmm. I said, is sort of its name uh, in a jokey kind of way, it, it, distinct from fight or flight for the mm-hmm. sympathetic nervous system. And so if you touch your lips, pe- many people report a calming effect and not just tap them, but just leave a knuckle there or find a way to kind of Maybe rest, make a fist and rest your chin on your fist, except you're really resting your lip on your fist. Nobody's going to stare at you. And just hang out and notice if that's calming. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, plausibly, there are other associations to it, such as feeding as an infant or as a young child or other pleasurable experiences that were soothing and calming that have to do with touching your mouth, sensation in your mouth and lips. So those are quick hacks. And then that's in the moment. Mm -hmm. when everything's really going nuts. More generally, it's really helpful to build up trait calm. There we're talking about triggers, uh, little clever things people can do for state calm. And by the way, uh, most people have their special go-tos for state calm. I mean, how they calm themselves down. Maybe they count to 10. Maybe they look out the window. Maybe they just get a cup of tea. Maybe they eat an M&M, something sweet. You know, they have their ways. That's fine. Uh, Put on chapstick. Put on lipstick. Because again, you're touching your mouth when you mm-hmm. do that. Think of the many, many self-soothing rituals we have that involve touching your mouth, like mm-hmm. cigarette smoking or making your pipe or putting on lipstick or chapstick. Very, very soothing. Mm-hmm. But besides state calm, there are things to do to acquire trait calm. 
Mm-hmm. And there are different ways to do that. Regular practices of relaxation. If if I have a someone who says, hey, I'm really pretty anxious, what can I do about it? I'd say, hey, five to 10 minutes a day, practice deep relaxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, lie on the floor, lie on a bed, sit in a chair, help your breathing slow, uh, progressive, if you like, progressively relax from your feet to your head or your head to your feet. Relax trigger points like the jaw muscles, your tongue, um, that little, the area between your eyes, uh, the diaphragm. The diaphragm is very centrally involved in the regulation of anxiety. These are just different ways to essentially train in calm, train in relaxation, and then using the methods we've explored already many, many times when you're having those experiences of of calm and relaxation and resting and ease. When you have that, really, really register the experience. Slow it down and feel like you're receiving it. And then if I could, just one last quick point is was recently pointed out to me. For some people, the instruction relax is actually a trigger for them. Mm, and it triggers mm-hmm. them into anything but relaxation because that uh, word or similar kinds of words were used by people who abused them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just, just relax, this will be good for you, or, you know, just, you can trust me, relax, blah, blah, and brrr. So one thing I've, I've come to appreciate is that it's very important to be willing to use different words for oneself. And here, if, if I'm or, or you, Forrest, are using a word that is uh, ever a trigger for someone, sorry about that, and, and also um, feel very, very free to substitute a different word. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I'm increasingly shifting into myself is is words like, uh, resting or easing or slowing down. I think for um, almost anyone, those those terms are, are fairly benign and neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, language is tricky mm-hmm. and is very powerful for different people in different circumstances. And if making a quick substitution or thinking about things in a different way is helpful for you, then by all means do that. Yeah. To add a couple of quick additions to some of the um, suggestions that you gave. If in the moment I'm really amped up about something, I do generally rely on the suggestions that you gave. That relaxation of the muscles, deep breaths, backing away from the stimulus, whatever it might be. For me, I found that if I'm in a situation where I should be relaxed, but for some reason I'm just not. Mm. The classic example for me is that I'm kind of a bad sleeper. Mm. And so if I'm just laying in bed at night staring up at the ceiling, Mm. I do a couple of slightly different things that have proven helpful for me. For one, I do a lot of visualization. I use imagery. Mm. Um, You visualize friends of yours or you visualize pleasant situations that you were in and try to kind of remember the experience of those situations or remember the experience of being with those people. Um, something from Laurel, my sister, mm. that uh, she suggested to me, she may have gotten it from somewhere else, so I can't give proper attribution, mm. but I heard it from her, is to uh, do gratitude practices. Huh. Yeah, so we're going to talk about gratitude as its whole yeah. separate own thing later on. But the idea of when you're having a hard time sleeping at night, just think about like, oh, I'm grateful for this, or mm. oh, this was really nice, or yeah, that was such a cool thing that that person did can really kind of get your brain into that sort of very mellow, relaxed, safe feeling experience. Mm. Um, And you can kind of drift off from there. So those are two that I've used 
at least somewhat recently. Yeah. And I found them both to be effective for me when I'm in a situation where I'm kind of supposed to feel relaxed. Yeah. Wow, that's great. It's really good. Yeah. So just a couple of other suggestions. I mean, use what works for you, whatever the tool in the, your toolbox mm-hmm. happens to be. Well, I want to give a nod in the direction of tranquility, serenity, and similar uh, profound states of being. And it's interesting that across all kinds of traditions, uh, whether it's shamanic contemplative practices in the rainforest or uh, in other traditions at very high levels of human potential, it's interesting how often forms of tranquility or serenity uh, are recommended as means to an end and also as the fruits of personal development, inner peace, we could also call it. And I just kind of want to call that out, if you relate to it at all. Uh, if I do, certainly very much myself. And uh, I think the, if you will, the perfection of calm is not suppressing, but it's to have a profound kind of inner peace and inner tranquility that uh, is always accessible even as you deal with what may well be disturbing in life. Great. I think that's a really wonderful note to end on. So today we had an episode focused on the strength of calm, particularly introducing the topic and focusing on the relaxing elements of it, where we can soothe the sympathetic nervous system when we're too amped up and kind of get back to a more mellow resting state. We began by talking about why calm was an important enough strength to warrant inclusion in this list at all, including how it's a great response to our most fundamental fear, which is the fear of our own physical safety. And being able to settle from that is such an essential part of managing any of our fears and stressors in the modern world. You gave a lot of great information on the biological factors of calm, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. These two ends of the seesaw that balance each other out, the sympathetic nervous system being kind of like the gas in a car, where the parasympathetic nervous system functions more as a break, calming and settling us when we get really amped. In general, in life, we're kind of supposed to go through it with much more frequent parasympathetic activation. We're sort of built to basically settle down, be calm, be mellow over extended periods of time with brief bursts of intense sympathetic activation, such as when we're either chasing down our own food or fleeing from becoming somebody else's food. Both of these sides of the coin have their strong points and their weak points. Both of them are good in certain amounts, but probably bad in massive doses. And the trick is understanding when to apply each pedal. In pursuit of that, we close the episode by looking at some ways that you can activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Some of the suggestions that you gave included touch, Touching your own body, touching your lips in particular is a very soothing gesture for many people. Acquiring physical distance or emotional distance from the cause of the negative stimulus. So that wraps up our episode focused on the strength of calm. If you enjoyed the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. And if possible, if you could leave a positive review, that would be great as well. It really does help other people who might be interested in this material find the show and we greatly appreciate it. 
So until next time, thanks for listening.